If you have your Bibles, turn to Lamentations chapter 1. Lamentations chapter 1. You ever go through something in life that makes you remember something that happened in your past? You ever as an adult experience something and it makes you reminisce? Think of, if you will, the good old days. It's one of the interesting things. I had my son yesterday mow the lawn for the first time with our electric lawnmower. It was interesting to see, to say the least. But he got it down. He figured it out, and I I reminded Luke that uh, the benefit that he has that I didn't is he didn't have a manual push lawnmower. Remember those other ones that were round? You know? You know exactly what I'm talking about, those of you that have grown up with those. The electric, start the first time, he's got it easier. But the truth is, all of us have different events in our lives that bring us back to childhood, that bring us back to when we were younger, or things that we remember in our past. What is even harder sometimes is when we have difficulties that we see right now that make us think, man, it was so much better and much easier in years past. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, church. I think what we're seeing in the world today, many of us cannot relate to that have grown up in America, particularly my generation. We have never had the struggle that we've seen the last few years going on. We've had it much easier than that. Now, for some of us, it's harder than others, obviously. But the truth is, the good old days for some of us are not what we would consider this time to be if we're looking at society and the world as a whole. But I want to postulate a point that it's during the hard times that God teaches us the most serious, serious things in life. He gives us the most truthful things that we'll encounter. In the sense that we see reality for what it really is when we go through difficulty. When things are good, we make poor decisions many times, do we not? We spend more money than we ought to because we know that it's going to be here next week anyway, so we're okay. But as soon as it gets a little more difficult, as soon as the pressure's really on, we realize we need to readjust. And the prophet here in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah, he has a similar experience. When he sees the city in ruins... He remembers what it was like in the past, what that city was like in the past. Now, we looked at the background of this book, and the prophet Jeremiah, who's called by God to preach a message of repentance, but nobody cared to listen. What a ministry to be called to, right? Go preach, and no one's going to listen to you. It's going to bring you to the point of tears, Jeremiah. That's why he's known as the weeping prophet. In fact, the name Jeremiah means Yahweh throws. A few things to give a little more context to the backdrop of the book of Lamentations. I just want to follow up from last week. Jeremiah was also a contemporary of Daniel, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Jeremiah himself was persecuted throughout his ministry, and he was called before birth by God to be a prophet. As a prophet, Jeremiah called out Israel for its idolatry, immorality, and essentially its its unfaithfulness and rebellion against God. 
all of which I believe are still pertinent issues in society today. The Jewish people were hoping for positive news of triumph, as they were hoping for during the time of Christ as well. But instead, Jeremiah preached essentially the same message that John the Baptist preached, a message of repentance. You mean to tell me that God cared about repentance in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yes, he did. And he still cares about repentance today. Turning away from worthless idols, immorality, and turning back to God instead of rebelling against him is still the message for today. Now, our, our idols are different than theirs, but they're idols nonetheless in society. This book is a book of lament or loud grief of a prophet whose city is taken over by Nebuchadnezzar and whose people are taken into captivity. This book essentially is a funeral song for a lost city. Now, as mentioned before, there are five laments, if you will, with the first four following an acrostic pattern. First letter of the lines or group representing each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, we're continuing in the first lament of the prophet as he laments over what he has just seen happen to the people he warned about judgment. And this morning, we're going to look at three things. Number one, the better past, verses 5 through 7. Number two, the defiling sins, verses 8 through 9. And number three, the violated shame, verses 10 through 11. Number one, the better past, verses 5 through 7. It says this, Her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy. With no one to help her, the adversaries saw her and mocked at her downfall. You see, Jeremiah is looking at the situation and seeing how the prophecy that he had given of destruction has now come to pass. The enemies of Jerusalem are now becoming her master. The refusal to repent and turn from their sin caused them to go into captivity, and their resources now benefited their masters. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but have you ever considered why it is that the wicked sometimes prosper? And could it very well be because we ourselves are refer, re, refusing to turn in repentance? If the church of God repented over the things that God called them out for, would society be different? And I would argue that it would. What may not seem to be a literal master and slave relationship is essentially what many of us have experienced when it comes to the things that the wicked promote and we refuse to repent over. Is it no wonder that the people of God in America don't have much of a leg to stand on in calling others to repent as they themselves refuse to do so? When is the world going to know that our allegiance is to the cross outside of a private gathering on a Sunday morning? 
When are we going to be bold enough to, instead of just calling out sin in other people's lives, call it out in our own and be honest about it and turn from it? Instead of pointing the finger at everyone else, start pointing the finger at ourselves. You see, many a Christian is enslaved by the very things they tell the world to stay away from. We tell our kids immorality is wrong, but allow ourselves exposure to all sorts of explicit material. The world has essentially become our master, and yet we say that Jesus is. Any Christian that wants to live a holy life is deemed a legalist by those that don't like to deal with their own sin. It's the default buzzword today in society, in Christendom. You see it online all the time. Someone wants to stand for a certain truth, you're just being a legalist. Not necessarily. Trying to live an upright life doesn't mean it's legalism. Here's the truth, the church has a lot of inconsistencies. And either we own them as Peter did when Paul called him out for his hypocrisy, or we continue to allow ourselves to be enslaved. You see, Jeremiah looks at the situation here and remembers how beautiful Jerusalem once was. In fact, here's what's amazing, and I, and I couldn't help but think about it. How many of you have ever heard the song, America the Beautiful? It paints a picture for you, doesn't it? Of what this nation once was. I think right now, with everything going on, that song just doesn't resonate as much with me. Listen to the description back in Jeremiah chapter 39 in regards to Jerusalem and what happened. Jeremiah 39 verses 1 through 10 says, In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. Then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate. Now these are hard to pronounce, so bear with me. Nergal Sherezer, Samgur Nebu, Sarsachim, Rabseris, Nergal Sherezer, Rabmag, with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. So it was when Zedekiah the king of Judah and all the men of war saw them that they fled and went out of the city by night by way of the king's garden, by the gate between the two walls. And he went out by the way of the plain. But the Chaldean army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had captured him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. The Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive to Babylon the remnant of the people who remained in the city and those who defected to him with the rest of the people who remained. 
But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah the poor people who had nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. One important thing to know here is that it took Nebuchadnezzar two and a half years to break through the wall of Jerusalem. Do you think during that time repentance was not an option? Sure was. Final destruction for Jerusalem came after an obvious siege was taking place, but they still had time to repent. And here's the truth, as bad as things are right now, there is still time to repent. Don't assume that just because we've seen judgment delayed for a bit that it will not come crashing down at some point. It most certainly will. You see, there's a reason why so many mock God in our country. Because they haven't seen anything happen yet. In fact, there's a great mockery that goes on throughout this nation when Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned. Oh, we haven't seen anything like that here, so we're not even going to take that seriously, that warning. It's a matter of time. may not be fire from heaven, but a nuclear war will get our attention. You see, Israel's enemies get the last laugh at Jerusalem. Jerusalem is humiliated. Judgment came because of the sin that this nation was involved in. Now let's look at what these sins, multiple, were. Number two, the defiling sins. Verses 8 through 9. Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. The description of the reason for her destruction here is a grievous or serious or great sin. Jerusalem was left exposed to the nations as a defiled woman unfaithful to her husband. The worship of Yahweh was perverted by the mixing of syncretism, mixing of various religious beliefs. The unfaithfulness of Israel led to her exposure to the nations as the nation tried to blend its worship of Yahweh with worship of pagan practice. Even worshiping the queen of heaven or Ishtar, the fertility goddess. Now listen to what God tells Jeremiah about how he feels about what they are doing and what they did do before he judged them. Back in Jeremiah chapter 7, this is the beginning, if you will, of Jeremiah's statement to the nation of Israel. Astounding to hear God say this. Starting verse 16, Therefore, do not pray for this people, 
nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods, that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. What a message that God gives Jeremiah here. Don't even bother praying. I'm not going to listen. These people utterly refuse. God is not having any of their mixing of worship then. And neither is He having any of it now. And yet many Christians mix their worship. We should not be surprised that many under the umbrella of Christendom borrow from pagan practice and find it absolutely fine. You need to understand that these people hated Jeremiah for calling them out on that. So much so that they imprisoned him over it. I've made this statement before and I'm going to say it again. Christians, and I should put that in quotes, Christians who don't tolerate what Scripture clearly says, are very intolerant to those that, that proclaim Scripture to them. Straightforward. Many progressives today are angered by the fact that Scripture says certain things very clearly to them. Which is why they argue the Bible's outdated, it wasn't really written for today, we take some of the stuff we like. The other things we're just going to ignore. And how dare you tell me that this is a sin. You see, in today's culture, the church has approached worship in one of three ways. And I need you to pay attention, church, because this is huge. It affects your families, friends, people you know that are part of a Christian organization. There are three different ways that the church has approached worship. Number one, exclusive. Number two, inclusive. Or number three, pluralistic. Let's go through all of those. Number one, exclusive. That means that only those of like precious faith should worship with us. Only those that have trusted Christ as Savior. And we hold the Scripture as the standard without mixing in any other religious practices which Scripture is opposed to, i.e., Eastern religious practices of meditation. You dabble with that, Christian, you're not exclusive in your worship. The cutting of the flesh, that's also part of worship in other cultures. Usually, exclusive churches are very particular with their doctrine, although there are debates as to how exclusive they would be in welcoming other Christian brethren into their midst. 
So that's the first group, if you will. The second group is what we call the inclusive group. This group means that Jesus is the only way for eternal salvation, but if a person hasn't heard of Jesus having lived on this earth, they will be spared due to God's mercy. God is going to be understanding. Jesus is the only way, but who am I to judge is the idea behind this position. And then we get to the third category, which is actually the majority in our country. I don't know if you know this. The pluralistic worship. Pluralistic means that there are many ways to God. Jesus is not the only way. Essentially, pluralistic folks are open to worshiping with people of all faiths, saying that we all worship the same God and we will all be in heaven one day. They are also the ones that are most frequently willing to be flexible to the morals of society based on it might offend another religious practice. Scripture is not the ultimate standard to them. We can glean from everyone. In order of offensive in society, the first, exclusive, is extremely offensive. Because you're making a statement that Jesus is the only way, there's no other option. Very exclusive. And in worship, it's a very particular thing that you're demonstrating. The second, inclusive, is somewhat offensive. person holds to Jesus being the only way, but they're willing to open the door, possibly. And the third, pluralistic, is the most inoffensive of all. It just accepts everything and everything that comes with it. Most Christians today would lean more towards inclusive and pluralistic in their worship. And their approach to faith is very much to the detriment of society. People that are inclusive and pluralistic typically take it out on those that are exclusive. So don't be shocked, believer, when other Christians are angry for you saying that Jesus is the only way. And I put that in quotes, because any follower of Jesus knows that he should be exclusive in that. In fact, that's what Jesus actually died over, his exclusive claims. It's amazing to me how many people twist what Jesus was all about. Jesus was so loving that he got killed for saying that he's God. That's an exclusive statement. Didn't sound too inclusive for me, or pluralistic for that matter. As a warning to all Christian parents, Many who start off exclusive in homes today shift in their position to inclusive or pluralistic largely due to personal experience. This is one of the biggest reasons why people shift. Well, you know, I know somebody. I experienced this. I can't. They're a really good person. How could I do that to them? How could I not let them know that they're in the kingdom? That kind of love is the greatest form of hatred the world knows. When you're caring so much to be nice to people, you can't tell them the truth. 
and you've deceived yourself into thinking it's now true. Many Christians do not want to be viewed as bigoted, which is why many of us lack the courage to say that Jesus alone saves, period. Oh, just come worship with us. We don't really care where you come from. We don't really care that you don't believe Jesus is the only way. Just add in your philosophy with the rest of us. That's syncretism, the very thing that Yahweh despised in the Old Testament, the very statements that go against what Jesus himself says. You want to know why our country's in trouble? It's because we've already given everybody a pass on this. They're all going to heaven anyways, right? I mean, how many times do we hear this at funerals? Probably a pretty harsh way of saying it, but somebody absolutely commits an act that is egregious and someone still has the audacity at their funeral to say, an angel's watching over us. We automatically just give everybody the status of citizen of heaven. Why repent? I mean, at the end of the day, what's the point of the church repenting if everybody's already in? There's nothing to repent over. Everything's acceptable. Why trust Jesus? He's just one of the many ways to get to God. Why live exclusively for Him? You're nuts to think that that's important. After all, my feelings matter way more than what Scripture clearly says. Which is one of the reasons why I find it fascinating that a lot of Christians have bought into the psychology more than Scripture and how to deal with problems between people. Well, you know what? It just hurts me. That's why I don't want to talk to them anymore. Oh, find that in the Bible, please, for me. Not your psychology book you just read last week. Where's that in Scripture? But you don't know how much they've hurt me. Let me remind you how much Jesus was hurt for one second, please. Try your best friend in your moment of the darkest night you could have had before your death, leaving you abandoned. The friends that you invested in are nowhere to be found. They're cowards and running away. Try that. We're not dismissing the fact that we've all been hurt. We understand that that's true. But I don't think sometimes we look at it from a realistic perspective. Imagine dying for your friends and they're not to be found. They're at a distance, embarrassed to know you. To be clear, church, we believe there's no salvation in any other than Christ, just as the apostles themselves proclaimed. There's no exception. We stick to what Scripture clearly states, the preaching of the gospel is important for salvation. Every Christian needs to be honest with this question. What made Jesus go to the cross? What made Jesus go to the cross? In light of those that were out to get Him.
There's only one main reason why he was so offensive. Because, because he was exclusive. He made the statement that I am the way, the truth, and the life. I and the Father are one. It wasn't because he was inclusive and nice to everybody that made him despised. Because he made a statement to the Pharisees and said, listen, I'm God. I'm here to proclaim what the Father sent me to do. It wasn't his inclusive or pluralistic acceptance of others that got him to the cross. It was his exclusive statements that he was God. Anyone that teaches salvation apart from Christ makes a mockery of his claims, period. Anybody that wants to go outside what Scripture clearly reveals is mocking what Jesus himself stood for. And it's a shame that many Christians are doing that. You see, the Jews in Jerusalem were incorporating false worship. And with this, God was not pleased in any way. In fact, they were left in shame. Number three, the violated shame. Verses 10 through 11. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. Babylon took over Jerusalem and made an absolute mockery of everything that they had. They desecrated everything that was sacred to that city. Everything that was set aside for God was now violated and taken away from its rightful place. All that Israel held dear was now desecrated and torn apart. The wonderful things that they had been known for, the exclusive worship of Yahweh, was now in devastation. All burned to the ground. The city that had plenty was now starving. People were trading to make ends meet and somehow feed their family. The blessed people were now a curse and a shame. I just want to ask this question. You ever, as a citizen of America, ever get this righteous indignation about what's going on in this nation. Like, it just stirs you up. You can't help but go, are you crazy? What are we doing as a nation? You can't believe that politicians are such liars, saying they care about the people of this nation. You can't believe the amount of disrespect that others have for authority. You can't believe how greedy others are. only to realize that you're committing the very sins that you're condemning others for.
I don't know if you've ever had to face that reality. I don't know if you've had those you are the man David moments. Not in a positive, you're the man. No, not one of those. More of a, I can't believe that shepherd would take someone else's sheep. That's you, David. You did that. Reality is, maybe you've been lying to people for years about how much you love God. The way you speak about others in authority, your kids would be doing the same to you one day, by the way. The concern you have over making sure you take care of number one, you, only proves that you're just as greedy as they are. See, the truth is this, church. When God warns Israel and he says, listen, judgment's coming and judgment arrives, what ends up happening to many of the people of Israel is they don't repent still. They just throw pity parties. Oh, it's so bad. I can't believe my life is a mess. And it really was. They were starving. Their cities destroyed. Their place of worship has been devastated. The question you have to ask yourself as we see judgment on the horizon in our country. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to realize that God called you to be something different? That's what we're going to finish with this morning. What makes you different? What makes you different? Is it just words that make you different? Well, I do this and this. I go to this church. Is it just words that make you different? Or is there more to it than that? Do you believe in the exclusivity of the gospel message? Or do you just ignore that because, you know, it's not really that important to you to make sure that statement's out to others. The gospel is offensive. It will always be offensive. It is literally, as Scripture says, a stench to people that don't want to hear it. But to you, it's the most sweetest aroma ever. So what do we mean by what makes you different? How much of a priority do you place on corporate worship with the saints? Like, how does that play into all of this? How important is it for you to be in worship service? I dare say many of us, when it comes to the things of God, we talk a good game. And sometimes a lot of us live off our past, so much so that we don't care to serve in the present. I've seen many people do that. 
oh yeah, when I was younger, I was passionate for the things of God, I did this and this, and then what happened? Why is, why is it that certain things that were a priority to you are no longer the priority anymore? Why is everyone else supposed to serve but you? Is it important for you to gather with the saints, or is it more optional than skipping a meal? See, some of you, you have no problem skipping breakfast, right? You need to do it for your diet or whatever it is that you're hoping to do, or you don't have time for it that morning. But corporate worship is almost that optional to you as well. For disciples of Christ, our priorities should be clearly shown in what we absolutely cannot go without. I dare say many saints of God that don't go to church faithfully, when they're on their deathbed, they long to have the saints around them. Particularly if they remember the sweet fellowship that they had. The truth is, a lot of us that are struggling and they try, we try to struggle on our own are constantly breaking down inside. We don't have it all together. In fact, those of us that attend faithfully don't have it all together. But that's why the Word of God is here for us to glean from. Because just as in Jeremiah's situation, God is trying to remind us that you need to pay attention to these things yourself. Your exclusive worship should be a priority to you, believer. Stop borrowing from the world and then bringing it into the church. And unfortunately, what happens sometimes with, with sermons and things that we actually hear from God's Word, we actually counter that in our head based on some ridiculous article or magazine that we read or book that we read recently that is contrary to Scripture. And we have a debate that goes on internally. Do I trust what God's word clearly says? Or do I trust this amazing author that I've started loving their books? You see, a lot of us, because we do not like to focus on what we call the negative, we always try to find someone that's a positive speaker to speak into our lives. And by default, some of those positive speakers are actually the greatest detriment to our spiritual walk. Because they're giving us garbage from a different philosophy. And when we try to realign it to Scripture, we're not finding that they line up. Maybe you're not that different from everyone else in the world. You've been doing it this way for years. Doing what everyone else is trying to do. Just trying to survive, right? Listen, you need to repent, and I need to repent. We need to turn back to Christ and ask for forgiveness. For the neglect of the more important things. I know we don't like to use this phrase all that often, but the truth is, when we do not make Christ a priority, we are unfaithful. None of us likes when people are unfaithful to us. We're okay with being unfaithful to God. Ah, God deals with unfaithful people all the time in his church. I'm just one of them.
Listen, church, it'll be painful at times to be what God's called you and me to be. But he doesn't share his glory with anyone else. God was exclusive in the Old Testament. He's exclusive in the New Testament. And there should be a contrast between what the world sees and what we see. The truth is, church, we have not taken to heart certain truths personally. One of the greatest ones is that God gave you the gift of eternal life that others are not seeing any value in. And sometimes you feel that, man, you're missing out. Nobody else has the problems that you do. Nobody struggles with the things that you do. Oh, they do. They do struggle. But let me assure you, church, that we have a God, a Father, that cares for His children. He cared so much for His children that He gave His own Son so that He could adopt us into the family. I don't think we take that in many times. We weren't born children of God. We were adopted children of God. Born again, but adopted children of God. It's because of God's divine election that we get to stand with Him. Undeserved merit. And I can't finish with a better phrase than what Paul himself says, to the praise of His glorious grace. 